several months ago, I was in a setting with some people, and uh, somehow the subject came up regarding the best leader that we had ever worked with or served with. And everyone was kind of sharing the men and women who had really impacted them. And for some reason, it also kind of deteriorated into the worst leaders <laughs> that they had ever worked with. And it occurred to me after that exchange that we pay unprecedented attention in our culture to leadership. I mean, you go into a bookstore and the shelves are just, I mean, bulging with books on the subject. Servant leadership, visionary leadership, strategic leadership, team building leadership, co-leadership. Uh, you can find books about corporate leaders, political leaders, military leaders, uh, nonprofit leaders. And in fact, there's a whole group of books now about leaders in history. Uh, leadership lessons from Abe Lincoln, Jesus as CEO, Leadership Secrets of Attila the Hun. That's a real book, okay? But it occurred to me that there is one book that is really hard to find. What makes a great follower? It is a hard book to find, and I'll tell you why I think it is. I think in our culture, although it doesn't always get expressed this way, sometimes in our culture there's a message that says that following is what you get stuck with if you don't get to lead. Some of you may have seen the t-shirt that says, if you ain't the lead dog, the scenery never changes. It's kind of revolting when you think about it, really. But true. The truth is that following is a fundamental part of our lives. Think about when we enter this world, we enter as little followers. That's what kids do. They follow their parents around every day. They learn from them. They imitate them. They model them. And they drive them a little crazy every now and then. Parents who are full-time with their kids at home sometimes tell me that they lock themselves in their bathroom with like chocolate and potato chips just to get a few minutes away from little followers who are following them everywhere. But it's not just that you're born that way. It goes even deeper because as followers, we're dependent creatures. Because we're not God, we are followers. I bring that up today because I want to read one of the most challenging statements I think Jesus may have ever made in this whole following business. Luke's gospel says that one day Jesus is talking to his followers and he says, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his or her cross daily and follow me. Now I want you to notice what Jesus did not say. Jesus did not say, if anyone wants to come after me, let them deny themselves, take up their cross and lead me. See, his call to the human race was to follow, to be with him, watch him, learn from him, listen to him, trust him, imitate him, obey him, devote yourself, Jesus says to me. For 2,000 years now, we have tried to understand what it means to be a follower. You know, we talk a lot about our church and our community here about being fully devoted followers. That the highest calling that we have is to aspire to be a follower of Jesus. But you think about that, there's really two dimensions to it. And think of it this way. There's a vertical dimension. There's that relationship between us and God, between us and Christ. And in this, we talk about giving full devotion, utter obedience, unquestioning following. We've been talking about that in the kingdom of God now for about 10 weeks. 
about what it's like to be really radically devoted to Jesus. But you also understand that there is a horizontal dimension to this. No matter where we are in our leadership giftedness, whatever calling we may have, we are also followers in some aspects of some other relationships with people. Whether it's our family, our work, our school, our community, our church. All of us, every single one of us have accountable relationships. And how we handle those relationships, friends, really deals and really kind of tells us a lot about success in life. If you want to bring an organization down, just find an organization where there is little or no true followership. So what I want to do today in this first uh, kind of um, second part of the series, but the first week of this second part about the kingdom of God and the coming kingdom, is I want us to stop and ask ourselves, am I really a good follower? It's a pretty simple question. And what makes a great follower? This is a really important subject for all of us today. What makes a great follower? I'm just going to, if I could in the time we have left, want to talk through a few things that I think Scripture points out. We'll start with this one. I think great followers take initiative and responsibility. Now follow me with this. This runs very countercultural and kind of against the stereotype of most followers. Most people think followers just hang around until somebody tells them to do something, right? That followers are just kind of passive people. They just kind of drift. And eventually when someone tells them where to go, they'll go. Someone tells them what to do, they'll go do it. Robert Kelly wrote a book called The Power of Followership. And he says, in the years I began researching this book, I've had the following conversation many, many times. A friend, an executive, a stranger, even on a plane would ask me, what are you working on? And I would say, followership. And they would say, what? What is that? Run that by me again. And he would say, followership, like the flip side of leadership. And every time, he says, people would say, oh, you mean the people who need to be told what to do? The sheep. You know, most people think of followers as sheep. I don't know if you know much about sheep, but they're not the most proactive animal in the world. If one sheep goes over a cliff, friends, the flock is not long to follow. Now you think, you would think that somewhere along the line, one sheep would stop and notice and kind of contemplate and reflect and say, you know, Sally went over that edge and she never came back. <laughs> I think I'll pause for a moment and reflect on the course of my life before I impulsively plunge ahead. But it never happens. Sheep just say, well, I guess I'll give it a try. I want you to know that the Bible never calls anybody to that kind of followership, friends. When followers abdicate responsibility and ownership, I can assure you bad things happen to community. A classic example of this is in the Old Testament book, Exodus chapter 32, where we read about a guy named Aaron. Now remember, Aaron wasn't the de facto leader, the people of Israel. That was Moses. But Aaron, who was his brother, uh, kind of signed on to be the public relations guy. He would talk for Moses and kind of fill in for Moses when he wasn't around. Now he has some followers. He has influence. But primarily, he's a follower. And in Exodus chapter 32, it says, When the people saw Moses was so long in coming down from the mountain... They gathered around Aaron and said, listen, come. 
Let us make gods who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses who brought us out of Egypt, we don't know what's happened to him. Now there's a great deal of drama going on in this story. The leader is gone, and vision is kind of leaking from the people. Because that's what vision does. It leaks. And the people are kind of ready to just kind of call this thing off and abandon their mission. And the question here is, will Aaron endure the pain of confronting this destructive behavior? And Aaron decides, for whatever reason, it's not my job. It's maybe one of the worst statements anyone can make in community. It's not my job. So he takes his passive line. He collects jewelry. You remember the story. He forms a golden calf. He calls the people to a festival. And even though he didn't like initiate idolatry, he never stopped it. He just said, it's not my job. And I want you to know this morning that yes, it is his job. To guard and to protect and to prize and value the spiritual well-being of the group. Friends, that is everybody's job. If you're a follower of Jesus and you're part of any loving community, it is your job to jealously guard the well-being of the people in that group. And if you abdicate that, if you abdicate that, bad things will happen. See, here's the deal. Aaron could have taken a stand. He could have said, come on, guys, this is idolatry. We've got to stop this nonsense. Maybe he would have spared the people enormous destruction because you knew what happened to them. Bad stuff happened. Maybe they would have turned against him and ate him up and spit him out. But you know what? At least he tried. Great followers don't just drift. Moses comes down from the mountain. He sees what's going on. This horrendous thing has happened. And he says, how did this happen? And he approaches Aaron. He says, what did these people do to you that led you into such great sin? Now, this is another critical moment because now he gets to take responsibility for a mistake. This is what great followers do. And instead, what does Aaron say? Remember what he says? He says, these people came to me. You know how they're prone to evil. They said, make us gods who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses who brought us out of Egypt, we don't even know what happened to him. And then they said, whoever has any gold, take it off. And they gave the gold and I threw it in the fire and poof! Out came this calf. I was shocked, Moses. Look at it. Can you believe it? See, Aaron is evading accountability. In community, the relationship between the leader and the follow, follower always has to have effective accountability. Whether it's at work, whether it's at church, whether it's in your family, whatever it is. Here's the deal. God has called you, friends, to make a tremendous difference wherever he has planted you. And one of the great signs of a follower is that they will not abdicate responsibility and they will take responsibility and initiative if needed. So I want you to think today about your workplace. Think today about your family. Think today about your ministry position. Think today about your church. It starts by saying, I am not a passive victim. I'm a follower of Jesus. And therefore, in my primary followership, it will reflect the caring and the well-being of the community around me. That's number one. Here's the second thing. Great followers seek to solve problems rather than grumble about them. Wow. Let's talk about this one. 
Anybody here ever led anything in your entire life where you encountered a grumbling follower? Anybody? Okay. I'm not sure you're being honest, okay? A PTA meeting? A little league team? A work committee? A family? A life group? A classic example, again, is from the book of Exodus. In fact, if you want to read how not to be a follower, just read the book of Exodus. The people in Exodus raised grumbling to an art form. One Testament, Old Testament scholar notes there's 11 times in the story of the Exodus where the people are said to grumble. And they use in the book of um, Exodus, the Hebrew word there for grumbling is an onomatopoeia. You know what that is? It's a word that sounds like what it really is. It's kind of like the word grumble in the English language. You just say it and it kind of sounds dark. In fact, just turn to a neighbor and just say, the, say three times, grumble, grumble, grumble. Just say it. Yeah. It just sounds like an ugly word, doesn't it? Well, they grumbled. Moses said, there's going to be freedom. God will be with us. And then Pharaoh doesn't cooperate. So they grumbled about that. Had to work harder than they did before. And they grumbled about that. Then God delivered them from Egypt, destroyed their enemies. And you'd think, now they'll be grateful. Now they'll rally to the cause. They go into the desert. They get thirsty. They don't have much water to drink. So they grumble again. So God provides miraculously for the people to have water. And you think now, now they've got water to drink. They'll be grateful forever. But then they don't have the food they wanted. So they grumble some more. In fact, in Exodus 16, 3, they say, The Israelites said to Moses and Aaron, If only we had died by the Lord's hand in Egypt. Now, friends, when you're wanting to die, you have raised grumbling to a new art form. We're not asking for much, Moses. Just a quick death. Just fill our bellies up like we were in Egypt and just kill us. So God intervenes. Listen, he gives them manna. And the people look at the stuff on the ground and they say, What is that? Which is what manna means. What is it? And by all accounts, it was this amazing food. You remember the story? The writer tells us it tasted like wafers made with honey. You could fix it in all different ways. You could bake what you want, boil what you want, lay aside what you want to eat. Anybody ever see Forrest Gump, the movie Forrest Gump? Remember the scene where Bubba is describing all the different ways you can make shrimp? That's where they got that from. Manna is exactly the same way. Baked manna, broiled manna, barbecued manna, manna on a stick, manna burgers, manna salad, manna cotti, <laughs> manna banana cream pie. <laughs> Listen, now they got water, now they got manna, now they're going to be grateful forever, right? Let me tell you what it says. The rabble with them began to crave other food. And again, the Israelites started wailing and said, if only we had meat to eat. We remember the fish we ate in Egypt at no cost. Really? No cost? The cucumbers, the melons, the leeks, the onions, the garlic, the bad breath. <laughs> but now we have lost our appetite. We never see anything but this manna. Now, here's what happens when you start grumbling. Mark it down. This is what happens. It becomes contagious. Verse 10 says, Moses heard the people of every family wailing, each at the entrance to his tent. See, first it was just this little group, the rabble. 
Now the people of every family are wailing at the entrance of the temple. Guess who's next to start complaining? Moses comes to the Lord and says, Why have you brought this trouble on your servant? What have I done, God, to displease you that you put the burden of all these people on me? Did I conceive these people? Did I give them birth? Why do you tell me to carry them in my arms as a nurse carries an infant to the land you promised on your oath to their forefathers? Where can I get meat for all these people? Give us meat to eat. Give us meat to eat. I cannot carry all these people by myself. The burden is too heavy. If this is how you're going to treat me, God, listen to what he says. Put me to death right now. I mean, everybody's calling for Dr. Kevorkian at this point. <laughs> Do you see what's happening? It starts with a little group. It spreads to the larger group. And eventually, who gets infected by it? The leaders. When followers give into this syndrome, it tanks the leaders and it eventually tanks the group. An author, social critic, a guy named Robert Hughes, he wrote this very influential critique of American society a few years ago. And he called it a very interesting title. He said, he called the book The Culture of Complaint. He says, you and I live in the culture of complaint. We live in a society where people perceive themselves to be entitled to having all their desires fulfilled. We were talking about this backstage that Netflix went out for two and a half hours yesterday and it almost caused World War III. <laughs> and when all their desires are not fulfilled, they accord themselves victim status. Listen, great followers realize this. They know that they're creating a culture a culture. They know that they're, they're creating either a culture of joy or a culture of complaint, a culture of hope, or a culture of defeat. Do you understand that? You create that. You don't just create like a physical environment which can be polluted. You also create a moral, emotional, spiritual environment, and that's where human beings really live. So here's the deal. Are you more likely to grumble about problems than you are to solve them. Maybe this is a matter of prayer. Will you say, God, listen, I'd like you to set my internal compass so that I'm not just a grumbler. Man, I'll tell you, this is so huge to any organization, whether it's a church, a, a nonprofit, a profit company, whatever it is. That makes a great follower. Here's the third thing. Great followers are truth-tellers. There's a tremendous need for this. Now here's where it normally kind of goes off the rails. Most people, they have this stereotypical view of people who are followers that they automatically agree with what the leader says. And I know some leaders want that, especially in churches. And oftentimes we'll have a phrase for followers. We'll call them yes men, right? Or yes women. And some leaders, that's all they look for is just yes men and yes women. But I'll tell you what leaders really need, and they desperately need this, is they need followers who will speak the truth in love. Wise leaders know how essential it is to learn from the perspective of other followers because leaders can't know everything there is to know. I love this proverb always been one of my favorite proverbs it says an enemy multiplies kisses but faithful and true are the wounds of a friend isn't that great 
An enemy will try to say anything to me that he thinks I want to hear. But a real friend will say the truth. You remember the classic story of this is David, King David, he commits adultery. And then he does something even worse. He plans to have Bathsheba's wife, uh, husband, uh, Bathsheba was his wife, Uriah, killed. So he sends a message to the general, Joab. Remember Joab? And the message says, listen, put Uriah in the front line somewhere, wherever the fighting is the heaviest, and then I want you to withdraw from him. And it's a clear order here to commit murder. Now Joab, <laughs> as a follower, receives this order and he faces a choice. Will Joab refuse? Will he jeopardize his position, I guess even his life? Or will he go along? And Joab's line is, I'm just following orders. Now here's what I want you to know. That's not the kind of followers God is looking for. This story is interesting to me because there's another follower who shows up later at the king's court, and his name is Nathan. He's a prophet. And when he found out what was going on, he approached David with great courage and a lot of skill and a lot of forethought. And he spoke the truth to him. Remember, he tells him this uh, amazing parable about a rich man who steals a lamb from a poor man. And David gets all emotionally involved in this story. And Nathan says, yeah, but that's you, David. You're the man. You've done the very thing that you hate in this other guy. Now, here's the deal. When Nathan did that, he did risk a lot. But this is so important. He loved Israel too much. He loved community too much. He loved his God too much. And listen, tell you something. He loved David too much. He had to tell the truth. Now, here's the deal. For some of you in this room, telling the truth when it comes to difficult situations is not hard at all. Okay? You come in with like two guns blazing. Okay? Cannons flying. Okay? What you need to learn, learn to do is to speak the truth in love. But there's some folks in this room, you're going to come to your Joab and Nathan moment. And Scripture seems to be clear that great followers are clear that they take ultimate orders from one source. Remember Peter and John? <laughs> they say, we must obey God rather than you. So this morning, if you're facing a hard conversation or a difficult situation, I just encourage you, great followers, tell the truth in love. Here's the fourth thing. Great followers have a heart for their team. Great followers are not individualist. You know, Jesus had to deal with this all the time with his disciples. Disciples, remember, they came to him one day and they had, uh, they had been talking, and James and John had been talking with Jesus. And uh, the disciples wanted to know kind of what they're talking about. And what was happening was James and John were jockeying for good thrones in heaven, you know, one on Jesus' left, one on his right. They were so worked out about this, they did the most important thing that any person could ever do, and that's they brought their mom along with them. And the default mode in followers is to get obsessed with status. And this is what we do. We do it internally, not necessarily externally. We'll say things like, how do I compare with that person? Or where am I at on the totem pole? Or where am I at on the friendship pole? Or where am I at on the popularity pole? 
And how can I strategically position myself to make sure that I get recognized or noticed or appreciated? Well, Paul talks about this, and he says that in God's alternative community, in this kingdom of God that we keep talking about, we all need each other. And that God has done something really cool. He has arranged the parts of the body which are most likely to get overlooked, the parts that are never going to make it on the cover of magazines or never receive plaques to hang on their wall, they would actually receive more honor in the body of Christ. Here's what it comes down to. Anybody here ever wrestle with pride? Muhammad Ali told us about himself one time. He was being interviewed, and he was on an airplane, and the flight attendant came up to him and said, uh, Mr. Uh, Ali, you need to buckle up. We're taking off. And Ali said, no, I don't have to do that. I don't need a seatbelt. He said, well, you have to. It's regulation. He says, no, I don't. I don't have to, and I'm not going to put on my seatbelt. And she said, if you don't do that, this plane is not going to take off. You need to wear your seatbelt, sir. And Ali said, I don't need a seatbelt. I'm Superman, and Superman don't need no seatbelt. To which the flight attendant replied, yeah, and Superman don't need no airplane either. <laughs> I want you to know this morning, Oasis, that in this community, there's no Superman. There is no big dog, and there's no fat cats. And the question to be answered is, is how often do you work to make sure that other people get recognized? Think about that for a second. Is that something that you really search for? Do you really say, God, help me see the potential that you've placed in this other woman or this other man or this other child? And when you do see it, do you try to kind of like elevate it up and call it out? Do you tell people what you see in them? Because what it does is it builds a culture where everybody has hearts for one another and they believe in one another and they see other people as being more important than themselves. When's the last time that, now be honest here, when's the last time that you, you actually gave up an opportunity so that you could give it to someone else? Not threatened by their success if they did it well. When's the last time that you went out of your way to make sure that a team member, whether it be here or at work or even your family, got first dibs? Are you really radically inclusive, especially to people who are different than you? Think about it. That person of color or that male or female, the opposite gender. See, great followers have great hearts for the team. And that brings me to one last thing, and we'll close with this. Great followers have a coachable spirit. Great followers have a teachable spirit. Great followers want to grow, and therefore they have open hearts and teachable attitudes. Great followers don't get defensive. You know, in many, many ways, one of the worst followers in Scripture was a guy named Peter. I'm going to tell you something. Peter got a lot of stuff wrong. But I'll tell you what he got right, and that he may have been one of the most coachable people in the world. Remember one day Jesus uh, was talking, and Peter makes this great confession in front of Jesus that Jesus was indeed the Son of God. And Jesus affirms this comment, and then he goes on to explain that it was necessary for
for him to suffer and he'd have to die. And Peter immediately pulls back and he says, oh, no, don't say that kind of stuff, Jesus. Bad leadership move. <laughs> That's bad for morale, Jesus. Remember what Jesus said to him? This is some tough stuff. I mean, Jesus wasn't having a good day today, I don't think. He said, get behind me, Satan. Try that one on your spouse. <laughs> Can you imagine the tension of that moment? <laughs> it's like when, when kids get in trouble, you know, all the other little kids get in trouble. Uh, the one kid, the one, the one kid always turns into gold. Like just, I mean, you know, they've never done anything wrong before. I can just see the disciples doing this. They're like, yeah, Lord, we, we don't know what we're going to do with Peter, you know. I was trying to talk to him about that this morning, Lord. <laughs> and Peter has to take on this rebuke. But he receives it. Later on that night, when Jesus is washing his disciples' feet, Peter misunderstands, and he says, no, 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 no. He says, I'll never let you wash me, Lord. And Jesus says, well, I've got to, Peter. It's necessary. So then Peter says, okay, then, Lord, wash all of me. And Peter says, no, 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 Peter, that's not the right way either. Then Peter goes on and denies Jesus in the courtyard, and Jesus has to restore him. And Jesus is coming to get arrested. <laughs> it's time for Jesus to go. Peter doesn't know what to do. So instead of, like, saying, I don't know what to do as a follower, he just grabs a sword and lops off the guy's ear. Now, friends, listen, when you can't think of anything else to say or do, that's not the right course of action. <laughs> I can see Jesus just picking up Malchus's ear, putting it back on. I'm trying to work with this guy as best I can. Here's the thing. Peter doesn't have a lot of things going for him, but he is a tremendous teachable spirit. And I'm going to tell you something. Jesus can use that. So here's the deal today. Here's the question. Are you a coachable follower? What is your defensiveness quotient? At work? At play? If you're the leader on the board or whatever, do you have a coachable spirit? Husbands and wives, are you coachable with your spouse? Think about it right now. When's the last time you said, I was wrong? Jesus is looking for followers still to this very moment. And great followers, people who really change the world and the world around them, they strive as best they can to live in that kingdom where they follow the greatest servant of all. Let's pray. Jesus, I want to thank you for being not only a great leader, but more importantly, a great follower. Because you followed the Father's direction and will every single day. You taught us how to lead, of course, but you also taught us how to follow which in our day and time is just, it's almost gone by the wayside. But today at Oasis, we're going to pause in this moment and we're going to ask you to um, call us once again to deny ourselves and to take up our cross daily and to follow you. So today as we walk through these five different uh, traits of great followers, 
may you um, and your spirit help our heart and mind land on the one or two that you want to cultivate in us. You know what they are. And I'm pretty sure we know what they are. So in these last few moments together as we reflect on it and we reflect on the sacrament of, of um, foot washing and we humble ourselves. Speak to us and challenge us. Empower us. Strengthen us. And wrap your arms around us and whisper to us. I will lead if you will follow. Amen. Social activist and author Shane Claiborne is a founding member of The Simple Way, a ministry in Philadelphia that has helped to connect radical faith communities around the world. Shane had the good fortune of working for 10 weeks alongside Mother Teresa in Calcutta, India. Now, in most parts of India, it's a custom for everyone to remove their shoes when entering any place of worship. And Shane noticed that when Mother Teresa took off her shoes for daily prayer, her feet were knobby, gnarled, deformed, and pressed in wrong directions. Shane wondered whether it was the result of a birth defect, an accident, the side effects of a disease or illness or even leprosy. A sister of the Missionaries of Charity explained the reason to Shane. You see, Mother Teresa and her sisters relied on donations for everything they had, including their shoes. They received donations of used shoes once in a while for distribution among the needy, and when those shoes came in, Mother Teresa would dig through the pile of shoes and consistently chose for herself the very worst pair, regardless of how poorly they fit. Her feet deteriorated by wearing substandard shoes. She crippled herself, showing love and compassion to those who had nothing. Mother Teresa loved the needy so much that she wanted them to have the very best of the worst. As followers of Jesus, we are his feet, the feet that bring the good news of the gospel to all. May we follow in his footsteps as we serve one another.